Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Jerry Chris Elliott High Eagle spent much of his adult life as a NASA engineer. He faced some resistance and even racism from colleagues, but persevered to become an accomplished member of the space program. He was even awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But he excelled beyond his work as well and made a mark as a writer, musician, and inventor. We'll catch up with J.C. High Eagle coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. 2023 was not just a tough legislative year in Washington for Alaska's lone U.S. House member, Mary Peltola. It was also a year of loss after her husband died in a plane crash this fall. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington on how the Alaska Native Congresswoman is overcoming the sorrow. While Alaska Democratic Congresswoman Mary Peltola is serving her second congressional term, she won a special election in 2022, which means she was barely able to get her bearings in Washington before she had to run for re-election. That's proved a blessing to Baltola, especially as dysfunction swirled around her this year, like when former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted and then Congress shut down for three weeks as Republicans battled over his replacement. Everything's brand new for me, so I don't know what to compare it to. Yeah. And then with so much having happened in my personal life yeah. that has changed it. I mean, that's, so um, thank you. And, but that's made it a different dynamic as well. Even though Peltola is new to Washington, she's far from daft. Of course, all of us aspire to a different kind of government where we're making improvements and not just barely keeping up with status quo from 15 years ago. So that's discouraging. That said, Peltola is an optimist, and even in a hyperpartisan capital, she's been able to forge new relationships with like-minded moderates. But I'm also encouraged because there is a lot of frustration. There's a lot of shared frustration in in both the Republican conference and the Democratic caucus. There's many of us in the middle. It's, there's so much middle ground, and there's so many people in the middle who want to make things work, and it's. We're, we're just figuring out, I think, how the levers and everything to make to push those, the middle forward. Peltola did serve 10 years in the state legislature, and she's been leaning on that experience to brush aside all the petty partisan bickering on behalf of her state. It's such an honor to serve Alaskans, and it's an honor to represent them in D.C., where there's so much national history, and to be able to have Alaskan voices Injected into national conversations is a good thing. I think Alaska has a lot to offer the rest of the nation in terms of how we do politics and how we get along with each other. For National Native News, Matt Laszlo in Washington. Leaders from around the West recently met in Las Vegas for talks about managing the shrinking Colorado River. Representatives from tribal communities want a bigger say in its future, as KUNC's Alex Hager reports. 30 tribes use water from the Colorado River, but they've long been excluded from decisions about how it's shared. Stephen Rowe Lewis is governor of the Gila River Indian community in Arizona. He said he wants to see formal protections for a tribal role in water talks. 
not just a seat at the table, we want to build upon that. You know, we, we want to be able to control the agenda that is for the betterment of all of, of the basin, for the entire region. Lewis says tribes can be an ally to federal and state governments looking to conserve water. His community recently accepted hundreds of millions of federal dollars to use less from the river. I'm Alex Hager. Lakutare Ojibwe University recently announced plans to become an emergency medical service training center after receiving approval from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. The training center will offer EMS courses. Program directors say it's part of efforts to address the shortage of EMS personnel in the area. Courses are expected to start in June. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. When you celebrate responsibly, you ensure holidays filled with joy, love, and cherished moments. And you keep yourself and loved ones safe while setting a positive example. Cheers to safe celebrations. Support by Diageo and the Multicultural Consortium for Responsible Drinking. More at drinkiq.com. More tribes are using drones from Cayuse Native Solutions to economically collect data for disaster response, aerial inspections, and more. More about drone services available at CayuseNativeSolutions.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. When an explosion ripped through part of Apollo 13's service module on its way to the moon in April 1970, our guest today was called into action to help save the lives of three astronauts on board. J.C. High Eagle was a NASA physicist at the time. His work bringing the astronauts home safely won him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And that was only one of the major accomplishments in his life. He was one of the first Native Americans at NASA. His career there spanned decades. Additionally, he is also a founder of ACES, the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. He is also an inventor, a writer, and a flute player. Today we'll talk with High Eagle about his life and overcoming barriers. As always, we encourage listeners to call in with questions and comments. What would you like to ask a former NASA physicist? Talk to him by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on any of our social media pages. Joining us now from Galveston Island, Texas, is J.C. High Eagle. He has many titles, among them our former NASA physicist, musician, inventor, and the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He is Cherokee and Osage. Hello, JC. Welcome to Native America Calling. OCO, glad to be here. It's great to have you on the show today. Uh, boy, you've got a lot of accomplishments uh, on your resume. Presidential Medal of Freedom, that's a big one right there. And throughout your life, you've advocated for Native people, Native issues. What's been the driving motivation behind your life and career, JC? The Creator, as always. The Creator guides you. Absolutely, guides each of us if we have an open 
heart and open ears to listen. Well, I understand you developed a very unique relationship with the Creator at a very young age. You you were just a young boy. Tell me about that. Well, at age five and a half, growing up in Oklahoma, I had a vision outside my house, and I heard a voice coming from the sun. And the vision from God says, your life purpose, one, is going to land men on the moon. Well, <laughs> that was very interesting because it was just at the tail end of World War II. No space program. Uh, people only dreamed of going to the moon, not landing men on the moon. So I went in the house, told my mother, there's a man outside speaking to me. She says, where is he? And I pointed to the sun, and she knew. She said, this is not... This is not a man. This is a voice from God giving you a vision. that You must keep that vision. So that's uh, pretty much how I got the vision and planned my life so I could accomplish my vision. Five years old, you have a vision. So from that point on, JC, did you know that was your destiny, your calling to become an aerospace physicist, work at NASA, assist with uh, all of the launches and, and just all of the other events that you were part of? Yes, I knew. And I knew that I had to study hard and, and get some kind of education that would accomplish that. So I went to the University of Oklahoma, majored in physics. And uh, it was that background that helped me uh, land men on the moon. Now, you were at OU, and as I understand it, uh, NASA, there were representatives from NASA that, that came to campus, and they were recruiting, they were looking for new hires at NASA. What was that like in those early days, in, in being recruited and meeting with those representatives from NASA? Well, uh, it was very interesting. Uh, the man came up to recruit, and I was uh, going to getting out of class one day, walked down the hall to the dean's office, and I saw an announcement on the bulletin board, NASA hiring today. And so I looked uh, in the door, and there were a lot of young men interested in NASA those days. So uh, I had a job that I had to get to. So I looked at my watch, said, do I have time to interview? Yeah, well, I'll try. So the man called me in to interview and said, what do you want to do? I said, land me on the moon. <laughs> he said, do you have a resume? No. Do you have uh, any uh, paperwork uh, filled out, a government uh, application? No. He said, well, do you have a way of me contacting you? I said, well, here's my mother's address and phone. I said, you can get in touch with me through her. So about a week went by, and she got a, a Western Union telegram saying, uh, we would like to invite you to be uh, an engineer in the space program, man in the space program. So I accepted a job, and I came to Houston, and uh, I stayed at NASA 41 years. And I was a part of every major NASA program since... Uh, Gemini, uh, all the Apollos, the flight controller, all the Skylab, uh, all the missions.
positions except the very first one, Mercury, which I uh, was still in high school. 41 years, four decades there at NASA. And then in the midst of, of your studies there at OU, you received a draft notice for Vietnam. Tell us about that. Well, all the young boys were getting draft notices. And I had, when I graduated uh, from physics in OU, I was working on my master's degree. And the, the government says, no, you can't stay in school. You have to come to the Army. So I uh, got a job as a police officer, uh, a deputy sheriff, uh, working part-time uh, in school, and then I was full-time deputy sheriff in the, at nights and weekends. So anyway, uh, that uh, uh, enabled me to uh, to apply at NASA for security purposes. Anyway, uh, when the guy contacted me and said, are you going to go to work at NASA? And I said, no, sir, I got a draft note. He said, oh, okay. He said, uh, who's your draft board chairman? And I told him. And he said, well, we have General Stevenson on our staff. We'll, we'll call Colonel Wilson there in Oklahoma and tell him that you're ours. And so <laughs> the uh, General Stevenson saved, saved me from going to Vietnam and enabled me to get my foot in the door to accomplish my vision, landing men on the moon. Mm, fascinating. Now, JC, how many Apollo missions did you work on? All of them. I worked on every NASA program since Gemini program, all of them. Okay, so walk us through, because I know, I mean, some of the, the Apollo programs were a little bit more poignant than others. Obviously, the Apollo 13 mission uh, was so historic, but you also had a role. What, what was your role on Apollo 11, the earlier mission? Well, I computed a lot of the technical information for the astronauts to load into their computers so they could land. And that was my role on Apollo 11. Now, I've been told, JC, that uh, the iPhone that I carry in my back pocket has more computing power than all the computers that NASA had to send those folks to the moon back in the 1960s. Is that true? Well, I'm not sure that that's completely accurate, but we, we didn't have uh, those kinds of technologies then. We had just a computer mainframe, huge computers, card readers, mag tapes. Uh, it was uh, not... Not a lot of technology back in those days, but we were we were able to land men on the moon through some rudimentary computers and program by MIT. So uh, today's cell phone certainly does have a lot more computer power than we had then. Well, I think of all those images of everybody wearing the short sleeve dress shirts and the, and the pocket protectors with their pens, and they're all on those big mainframes, and they're typing away. I mean, what was that like, J.C., just being in that control room when Neil Armstrong took those first steps? Well, it was uh, a major accomplishment of my vision. Uh, his call out was, the eagle has landed. And, of course, my name, High Eagle, uh, struck a deep tone within me. But uh, it was uh, like I had done what the Creator had called me to do. And it was a feeling of pride, accomplishment. I was the uh, only American Indian, the first one hired at NASA. 
working my way through much adversity, much of racism, uh, in order to do what I had to do. What type of racism did you experience at NASA? Oh, I had things. They First of all, it made me cut my hair. It made me look like everybody else, <laughs> which was okay. But they would lay things on my desk that were derogatory, things about Indian people. Uh, I, I used to take off work, uh, take religious leave, and go to the Black Hills for prayer ceremonies. And that was not luck. That was not uh, liked by my manager. And there's just a lot of things they did not understand who Indian people uh, are. That's uh, part of the problem, even today. Uh, people don't understand who we are. We are talking today with J.C. High Eagle, a NASA physicist who won the Presidential Medal of Freedom for safely bringing astronauts home from the Apollo 13 mission, a very historic mission there, Apollo 13. Many of us are familiar with that issue. It was made into a movie, Uh, many, many stories, and we're going to just hear more from J.C. High Eagle when we come back from this break. And if you'd like to ask Mr. High Eagle a question, our phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. Have you ever considered what you would do if you were president? What would you like to see your elected leaders accomplish? We'll turn to our listeners to hear what's on their minds and what they would do if they were making the decisions. That's on the next Native America Calling. It's the holiday and everyone looks forward to friends and family and sharing in the joy of the season. So remember to celebrate responsibly. The holidays often include enjoying a drink or two, so it's crucial to remember moderation is vital. Here's a tip to help you celebrate responsibly. Set a limit. Decide in advance how many drinks you'll have and stick to it. You can also alternate alcoholic beverages with water or other non-alcoholic options. Happy holidays. Support by Diageo and the Multicultural Consortium for Responsible Drinking. More at drinkiq.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're talking with J.C. Elliott High Eagle about his career at NASA and his other accomplishments outside of the agency. Do you have a question about the Apollo missions or his work encouraging Native people to pursue STEM fields? Share your insights at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And a reminder, you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to other types of native programming by downloading the NV1 app to your smart device. JC, listening to you uh, share these stories about NASA there in the early days and those old Apollo missions, and uh, it just seemed like such a risky proposition all those years ago, sending somebody to the moon. Um when Apollo 13 was was lost the way it was, and it, it looked like those those folks just might not come home. I mean, 
what was what was the energy like? What was the emotion like in the control room there amongst you and your and your colleagues? Well, nobody knew what happened. They don't know what caused uh, the the disaster, and they're trying to regroup and figure out uh, how to keep the crew alive. My job was to compute a return to Earth trajectory that would bring them safely home. So I knew my job. And how long did it take to to get get back on track and and, and get the get Apollo 13 home. And how, how long was that time frame there in the control room where you just didn't know and then finally you folks knew that they, they were going to be okay? Well, I knew instantly what we had to do. We had to compute a, a trajectory that would bring around the moon and then speed up the spacecraft uh, towards the Earth. And it took roughly around two days to get back from the moon. In that time, the rest of the people there were systems people they had to deal with how to keep the astronauts alive, oxygen, so on. And how were you able to maintain your composure under that stress? Follow my Indian heritage. You know, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I don't give in to adversity. Uh, our people have had adversity all of our lives for thousands of years, and we know how to deal with adversity. So we come from our inner strength. Let's take a caller now. We have Eric who's listening on KIYE in Lapway, Idaho, Nez Perce Nation. Hello, Eric. Thanks for calling in today. Dr. Mayway, how's it going? Good to hear your voice again, Sean. Great to hear you, Eric. Yeah, I just, um, I appreciate the conversation. I just wanted to talk to our guest speaker. I just uh, truly appreciate his uh, passion and his time and efforts to the NASA. Just, I had a comment just uh Back when they had the Columbia shuttle recovery efforts, uh, the Nestor Strive, we sent like four different uh, fire crews and um, a number of different camp crews to go assist in that effort. And, you know, it was one of those uh, kind of rough times for NASA. And I just, um, I was a part, I was really a, um, honored to be a part of that effort. And, and then at the same time, we were able to um, then meet uh, astronaut John Harrington. And we met him at Palestine, Texas. And we went into this um, assembly hall where they had all the firefighters that were searching for a Columbia shuttle recovery parts get in there. And, and um, he, you know, him being a, a Native American, and he knew the nest first. And we were sitting down in the front row, and he just says, before I start and say anything, I want to acknowledge my brothers and sisters. I want all of my Native Americans to stand up and give me a war hoop. And so I'm talking, there's literally like 20 different fire crews from around the United States that were from different reservations, and we all got up, and at the same time, on a count of three in unison, we just gave a loud war hoop, and it was electrifying. And I could tell that electrified Mr. Harrington and those other astronauts because, you know, that was a proud moment for all of us to witness him up there on stage and then to know that there was representation from the Native American community up on, you know, as an astronaut in NASA and and to hear your story about your longevity with NASA, what you had to go through, just brought me to want to bring that up and say that, you know, there's not too many of you in NASA in that world. And it's just truly uh, humbling to hear your story. And one, at least I was a small part of, you know, with our Nesper's tribe assisting in that effort. And, you know, it was something that was tough in those times for you guys. And especially, you know, just for the people that were involved directly and affected by that. And, 
we did our little part to assist, and I just wanted to comment to say I'm proud of what you did, and I'm um, proud of worked a little bit and do our part for NASA when we did have that chance. So appreciate the conversation this morning, and um, I'll throw one on the sweat house for you. <laughs> Eric, we really appreciate you calling in. That is a wonderful, inspiring story. And, of course, we're proud of you folks there, too, uh, assisting uh with the investigation uh, like you describe. And uh, JC, our caller, Eric, he mentions John Harrington, of course, uh, first Native American person to fly into space. Uh, do you know John Harrington well? Yeah, I know him very well. I, I wanted to speak to something about my part at NASA. It was more than a vision of landing men on the moon. Working at NASA enabled me to do things in Indian country that no one else could do. And I, I conducted the very first solar energy conference in the United States that was all American Indian, held at Phoenix, Arizona, 1979. Also was able to borrow NASA's communication technology satellite and conducted the very first telecommunications demonstration in 1978. So it was more than just working at NASA. I found ways to help our people with technology and do things that I would not be able to do had I not worked at NASA. Yeah, it's wonderful how you were able to just uh, springboard and, and just you've done so many different uh, types of projects in your life and of course uh you know i want to talk more about your music playing native flute and uh and, and your cherokee as well and uh jc what what band are are you eastern band are you cherokee nation uh, where are you enrolled i'm not enrolled and our family does not want to be enrolled uh we do not think that that's a profit profit a proper thing is registration to the government uh our people were never registered. They came on the Trail of Tears. They were fearful of being registered, and they thought was, well, if I put my name and how to contact me, they'll round me up. Uh, there was a lot of bitterness about trying to be on tribal roles, and so our people would would refuse to do that because we did not know what the government's intent was to have that information. And not only that, uh, some of my family was uh, killed in in Arkansas when they left the Trail of Tears uh, by some of the white people that said we we hate Indians and they hung they hung some of my family members. So <laughs> there was a lot of resistance about being uh, known as American Indian, particularly Cherokee. In those days, you did not know what your fate was going to be. Mm. That's interesting, and and I, I understand. I know you know years ago being enrolled, it wasn't as, as nowadays. You know, people put a lot of emphasis on that, and, and and many years ago, I don't think it was a priority among Native families like it is now. But do you ever get any pushback on that today, not being enrolled? Because people are, you know, there's a lot of people that that make uh, they make judgments about Native people as to whether or not they're enrolled. Well, that's the white man's way. You know, paper has always been the white man's way. I'm not a card-carrying Indian and will never be, and neither was Crazy Horse or other leaders. Okay. Uh, I'm a, I'm native, born from native people. And my mother had the greatest lesson. 
She says, no one has the right to call you Indian except your mother and your father. Interesting, interesting. Well, tell us more about uh, your flute music. When did you start playing native flute? Oh, I started playing about 1976. I heard the thunder outside my house. It was a speaking thunder. It says, get your flute, I'll give you a song. So I had the flute on the wall. Had never played it before, never had instruction, didn't know how to play. But with faith, I got the flute off the wall, and out came about 36 minutes and 20 seconds worth of flute music, which I had recorded there in my living room because I had it set up to record some radio programs. So uh, that's how I started playing. It was a music. I'm a spiritual musician. Music comes through my soul, through my spirit. Uh, I do not uh, uh, have instruction. My only instruction is the creator. It gives me my music. So that's where it comes from, the source. I honor the source. Now, I know you performed at the, at the National Symphony Orchestra, and you've toured with, with jazz and blues bands. So are, are you still active as a musician, along with all your, your other endeavors? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I did uh, 19 shows with the National Symphony in Washington, D.C., and 20 shows with Milwaukee, one show with Oklahoma City Symphony. Uh, and they did some of the music behind Walker, Texas Ranger. Uh, on his first uh, three episodes uh, on the TV series. Plus other things, I played seven years running at uh, Milwaukee, the Indian Summerfest on the shores of Lake Michigan. Uh, so I did a lot of shows there. And from time to time, people call and ask me to come play, and I love to do that. Uh, music is, is a way of life. It's part of who we are. Flute music was originally not played to be entertainment. It was played as love music to court your wife or your lover. That's where music, uh, flute music started, is to pay homage to your loved one. So today it's taken more of an entertainment uh, interest, which is okay. It's just that's how it started in the old days is to, to court a woman. JC, we have another caller on the line, and uh, this is someone you know well, your daughter, Amanda McLaughlin, listening to our conversation. Hello, Amanda. Welcome to Native America Calling. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Well, what would you like to add to our conversation today about your dad's life and accomplishments? Uh, he's a, a man, a jack of all trades, <laughs> as you guys are, are finding out. Um, He's got a, a vision, and he sticks to it, and that's kind of what I've, as an adult, I'm learning more about what his vision and beliefs are and, and all of his many accomplishments of things that he puts his mind to, and he goes. And what was it like growing up with your dad, uh, working as he worked at NASA and involved in all these you know, deeply, deeply impactful uh, launches, the Apollo missions. I mean, did you know what your dad did when you were a kid growing up? Did you know how important his job was? Um, uh, honestly, no. Um, you know, living in where we did, 
you know, a lot of my friends' parents just we they worked at NASA, and that was just a daily thing of just going to work and coming home. Um, you know, being young, didn't really know and understand the magnitude of what they did. Um, it was just my dad worked at NASA. Oh, well, my parents worked at NASA too, kind of thing, talking with friends. But um, it's not until in my adult years that I've started to learn more about his roles and what his visions were and how things were uh, kind of played out in his lifetime. Amanda, a lot has been written about your father, a lot of biographies and articles. What's something you can share with us about your father that's never been shared before, that hasn't already been written about in an article or a biography? Um, I mean, like I said, there's there's lots of different interviews he's had. Um, you know, our main connection was um, our trips to South Dakota, going to Bear Butte Mountain. Um, those are some, you know, intimate moments between he and I and the others that joined us just to pay homage and to uh, make that experience together. And are you still active, you and your, your father, are you still active with some of those traditional journeys and, and the spiritual undertakings that were a part of your childhood? Um, we are. Uh, he lives close by me, so we have the opportunity to be able to spend those moments together and, and be able to park and take in on different um, aspects of life. Well, JC, I, I'd love for you to respond to Amanda and also just for anyone listening to the show today. Um, what's, what's your philosophy as a parent and as a father? What's, what advice can you offer anybody right now who has children? Well, it seems our, particularly our native youth, no longer respect their elders, and they give way to their ego pursuits that lead only to misery, loneliness, suicide, suffering, drugs, alcohol. Uh, the youth must maintain their traditions by maintaining connect, connection with their elders, because it's us elders who have the wisdom of life that we need to hand on uh, to our youth. Uh, we recognize as elders that the future of our people is our youth. They are our future. So we, we have to be able to instill in our youth the wisdom of the old people and carry that as part of our tradition. It's not how we dance, not our artwork or other things our real things that we need to transfer to our youth is how to live a life of happiness and how to be free as an eagle. Now, JC, when did you start making those trips up to South Dakota to Bear Butte? How old were you? Oh, I was in my late 30s. I had my first vision at Bear Butte Mountain, which... Uh, people can read about, that ended up as the very first, is the bicentennial year, by the way, 200-year celebration of the country. And there was no uh, evidence at all, nothing about the American Indian in those 200 years. So the vision I had on top of Bear Butte was I came off the mountain and I wrote down uh, some paper and sent it to the Congress, and that ended up signed by the President Ford as the very first week of celebration for the American Indian in the history of the country, it was Native American Awareness Week, 1976. 
and that week has taken on more distinction, uh, distinction now and has become evolved into uh, uh, American Indian uh, Awareness Month. It's in November. Native American Heritage Week, Native American Heritage Month. Uh, we're learning a lot from J.C. Elliott High Eagle today about his career, about his life. Uh, we've had a chance to talk with his daughter, Amanda, and we're waiting on your call now. What would you like to ask J.C. High Eagle? 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're waiting. Call us now. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. You are listening to Native America Calling. Join today's conversation with J.C. Elliott High Eagle by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. And J.C., before we went to break, you mentioned uh, Native American Heritage Week started back in 1976. And you know, these, these kinds of big big awareness campaigns. I mean, that takes a lot of people, a lot of folks involved. I know back in 1975, NCAI they passed a resolution that was, you know, the beginning, the foundation of that legislation. And who were some other folks that worked with you uh, with drafting that legislation that recognized Native American Awareness Week back in 1976? No, it wasn't anybody. I went to NCAI and, and asked them to write a resolution for that. Uh, but the vision came from God. I didn't need anybody else. I followed the Creator's guidance. And this ultimately went through 100 senators, 535 congressmen, and the president to sign into legislation. And the original words that came out of my my hand on the paper uh, went into law, declaring Native American Awareness Week 1976. Not one word was changed out of the original writing from from the Sacred Mountain. Okay. Well, J.C., I just, I just want to clarify, I know a recent article in, uh, in uh, USA Today, uh, I know Suzanne Harjo was quoted as saying that uh, there were other folks involved in that legislation, but uh, that, that was quoted uh, by Suzanne Harjo earlier this year. But uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Peace and Unity celebration in Ecuador, because that's another instance of, of you being involved with awareness for indigenous issues. I want to respond to that comment. There, with all respect to Suzanne Harjo, uh, no one else was involved. It was me directly to the Congress and to the President. There were a lot of people that got involved in the week, but as far as getting it passed, no. The other vision I had in 1986 at Fair Butte, same place in South Dakota, Black Hills, I had a vision of world peace. 
and that ended up me dedicating, along with 38 indigenous people from the United States I took with me to Ecuador, we dedicated the world's first international site for peace. It's on the equator. And what year was that, JC, again? It was October 1986, 10 years. 1986. Uh, 10 years uh, later from the first vision I had in 76. Okay. And then what year did you win the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom? I'm, I'm having a hard time keeping up with, with the timeline and all your accomplishments. Well, that was in 1970, 71. Yeah, it was when uh, the end of the Apollo 13 mission, we brought them safely home. And what was that that ceremony like, uh, winning the presidential medal like that and uh, and just being part of that whole experience? Well, I don't live my life based on pieces of paper or medals, okay? The, the accomplishment that, that I had, the feeling I had was I did it. Uh, and that's all the reward I needed, okay? Any ceremonial things don't really matter to me. Uh, what does matter is that uh, I did what I needed to do and uh, was successful, so... The celebration is inside me, not outside me. Mm -hmm. JC, let's take another caller. We have Jen in East Texas listening online. Hello, Jen. Hi. Thank you so much again for taking my call. <laughs> I'm so, I, I really just wanted to say uh, wado to our guest today uh, as, as I'm a Cherokee, and I certainly appreciate his his lineage and, uh, and Osage lineage, but he has accomplished so much, and I wanted to thank him for all he's attempted, especially in activism. And um, I'd like to know, I'm sure he's probably available for making speeches or playing his flute. Is there a contact information we can, we can get in contact with him? Sure, thanks for calling in, Jen. JC, how can listeners get in touch with you? Well, I think you have my contact information. The best thing to do is to write or contact you. Gotcha. Okay. Now, among other accomplishments, let's talk about uh, the patent that you were awarded to, to treat cancer. It's just <laughs> one of a, another amazing uh, accolades. Now, now, what type of treatment is that, and how did you develop that technology? What, what got you into, you know, developing cancer treatments? I didn't develop it. It didn't come from me. It came from God. I was at NASA one day in my office, and I had a vision of what this technology looked like, and uh, I wrote it down, and... After I left NASA, <clears throat> I went to the patent office in Oklahoma City, to a patent attorney in Oklahoma City, and we patented the, uh, the invention that I was given from the creator, and that is to treat cancer, blood-related diseases. And it took five years to get the patent. Every, every year, the patent office said, no, we're not going to give you a patent, and I went back and back and back. And finally, they gave in because I had enough evidence and proof that this technology would treat cancer. So, again, in the face of adversity, we don't give up. 
We don't give in. If we know we're right, we pursue it. And so I pursued it. Uh, here recently, I have formed, uh, among others, uh, my daughter and, and others, uh, a nonprofit uh, foundation called CancerBeGoneFoundation.org. And we have a beautiful website. You can read about it, CancerBeGoneFoundation.org. And so we're raising funds to build the technology so that we can get approved by the FDA and start treating people with cancer. By the way, this is the only cancer treatment in the history of their office, patent office, that does not use radiation, does not use chemotherapy, and it uses natural uh, ozone and heat. Natural ozone and heat will, will kill cancer cells, and I have proof of it, 35 years of documented evidence. So, again, I follow the natural ways. And uh, it always works. Now, JC, uh, our caller, Jen, unfortunately, she did hang up, but she also had uh, wanted to ask you a little bit about your writings, because I know that's another area that you spend a lot of your time and energy. Talk to us about your writing and what motivates you to write. Well, once again, the creator is always my mentor and motivation. Uh, the creator gave me 44 American Indian stories for kids. For youth, and these are in the old days, uh, elders would uh, tell stories to youth as teaching stories, as lessons on how to live life. And so I've written 44 American Indian stories and legends. I'd love to get those published because I don't know how and don't know who to go to. But if anybody has any ideas about that, I'd appreciate it. These stories need to be preserved. It's really part of our tradition. Uh, I have uh, written a American Indian stage play called Great Spirit. I'd love to see that uh, played uh, someday. A uh, lot of uh, articles that I've written uh, about American Indian life and about uh, respect for the Mother Earth. I, I do a lot of writings because it comes through me from the Creator to document all of these thoughts and writings to be shared. My granddad said, what you know uh, you do not own, and what you do not own you must share. So that's what I do. <laughs> I share things that come into me from the Creator. And so uh, that's uh, been a big blessing to my life, to be able to write uh, the guidance that I've received from the Creator. <laughs> That's uh, the writing and the music and, and of course, all your work with, with inventing and technology. And what about any hobbies, JC? Do you have any other hobbies uh, that you pursue either formally or, or informally that, that you, you don't always talk about in interviews or, or articles? I don't know. I, I love to play guitar. I love to play my flute. Uh, but uh, my hobbies are... Basically, our music. I love music. I think music is very spiritual, and is very it's very healing. So, uh, one time, I was told through the spirit, "Go get a synthesizer." Well, I don't know how to play a synthesizer, but I went and bought one, and 
all of a sudden I started playing spiritual music on the synthesizer, and I produced uh, 12, back in those days, 12 cassette tapes of synthesizer music. And the very first one I called Great Spirit, because that's where the music came from. So, <laughs> so hobbies, uh, my interests are life. I'm interested in life. I'm interested in what the Creator gives to me and is available for other people. If they just open their hearts and their ears, uh, they will hear and receive from the Creator. And so that's that's the excitement I have in life, is to follow uh, not ego pursuits, but follow spiritual pursuits from the Creator. And we've still got your daughter, Amanda, on the line. Amanda, any other stories or any other insights you want to share about your father? Uh, just kind of piggyback off of him um, with his many talents. I'm actually kind of jealous of all the talents that he has <laughs> um, because he does have a vast uh, variety of, of different unique things that he brings to life. And I en enjoy being around him and seeing, you know, his, uh, he does cartoons, his music. My children have grown up listening to his music and playing. Um, and it's just, I thoroughly enjoy and love being around him um, and, and getting to share him with my family as we're growing up and having him close by and I'm learning more about who he is and, and what a great, not just a father, but a role model and figure for, uh, you know, the world. And Amanda, the way your father so adeptly balances his spiritual and scientific beliefs, have you been able to, to practice that in your own life as well now that you're an adult? Um, I have. Um, I've always known, like kind of like Kim as a child, I've, I've had these feelings and seen things but never truly understood what they were. And now that I'm older and can have these conversations with him to let him know, hey, these are some things that I've experienced that parallel to what he's also experienced as well is, is being able to share those that no one else really can connect with and knowing that there's someone else out there that knows and understands these spiritual feelings and understandings um, with what I have as well. You know, we always and, joke around and say that little voice inside and that is, you listen to your, your inner being and that little voice and it, it will lead and guide you through life. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And JC, we're, we're starting to wind down the show here, but we still have a, a couple of minutes to talk. And think about all the people that are listening to our show. You know, we have listeners uh, all over the United States. We have folks that listen way up in Alaska. We have a lot of rural uh, community stations up there. And, and what's your message to Native people? Now, here it is, 2023, and um, just some of the issues that we face as Native people. What's your message? Our message is it's the nation and the world must realize Indian lands and its resources and Native people who occupy them are an endangered and valuable resource that must be guarded, protected, and allowed to be free from interference. Uh, I, I challenge our people who are listening, especially the youth who are proud of their Indianness, to achieve an education that will make the future point to them with even more pride than the present. I also challenge them to accomplish more than those of us who have gone before us. And I also challenge them to shoulder more responsibility 
to make life obey them, not you obey it. And you can if they let it happen. Uh, for those that think life is a bore, those of, of uh, those listening who think they're weak, I challenge you to be strong. You can be, and you are. Uh, I, I, I would like to say one thing about drugs, alcohol, smoking tobacco has been popularized among my people's broken spirit. Uh, my people are in search of something they've always had, and that's called spirit. But their lives substitute the mystic powers of drugs and alcohol to give the illusion of satisfaction and to make up for their several, uh, their uh, spiritual connection that's broken that brings the, the waters of fulfillment. The alcohol and drugs in our native communities have broken the spirit of our people and do not make you powerful and do not make you special. They just make you a drunken Indian. Drugs and alcohol sever our spirits from the Creator, and they make us less of a man, less of a woman, and not more. The Creator uh, cries tears for those who have abandoned their ancient ways. JC, I really appreciate you joining us today and uh, sharing all your wisdom, sharing all your experience. Uh, appreciate it. And just please just keep inspiring us. Will you do that? That is our purpose. Thank you, JC. We have reached the end of our hour. And once again, a big thank you to our guest today, JC Elliott High Eagle, for a wonderful conversation. Join us again tomorrow as we ask you, our listening audience, what would you do if you were president of the United States? You'll have an opportunity to tell us what you would like to accomplish if you had the power of serving in the Oval Office. Can't wait to hear your ideas, listeners. And until then, have a great rest of your day. I'm Sean Spruce. Support by the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Have you or someone you know experienced discrimination in USDA lending programs before January 1st, 2021? The USDA Discrimination Financial Assistance Program, DFAP, is a limited one-time program to provide financial support to ranchers, farmers, and forest landowners discriminated against by USDA lending programs. Interested producers must apply by January 13th. More info and application assistance at indianag.org. Anika Yali, Anika Lopti, Ale with the Zetla Unilu Cheti, Tehla no Hetiska, Tehino Sehesti, Na go well a yella nudan hadega gutlai, Unina Esti. It's a dule to Delo Ho Histina, healthcare.gov slash coverage with Tatla no Heta, Ale one eight hundred three one eight two five nine six. He are getting no some Medicare, Ale Medicaid, Unadoska in. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.